Working towards the uh, launch of Dragonfly in 2027, uh, five years from now, and uh, it should arrive by 2034, which is uh, a particularly useful time on Titan because it's exactly one Titan year after the Huygens probe descended. So it's the same season. Wow. So we can exploit the fact that we've measured the winds with the Huygens parachute descent mm -hmm. and we, right. um, we can basically take the, the seasonal variability mm -hmm. out of the equation in terms of what we have to design Dragonfly for. Episode 105, Return to Titan, Dragonfly. NASA's Cassini-Huygens lander arrived at Titan on the 14th of January 2005. The first instrument to make contact with the surface of Titan was a penetrometer made by Ralph Lorenz. Since then, he's gone on to write many books and work on several other projects. In this episode, he speaks about some of those projects, especially Dragonfly, a return mission to land on Titan. This mission, for which he is the mission architect, is like no other. It's not really a lander or a rover, but a quadcopter that will sample different regions near the landing site during its 3.3 year lifetime. Ralph talks about what we can expect from Dragonfly, which will launch in 2027 and arrive at Titan in 1934. The documentary Destination Titan we refer to in this discussion is available on YouTube. The link is on the web page for this episode. Lorenz, um, I and so many other people will know you from that uh, fabulous documentary from 2011, I think, Destination Titan. Um, that was one of the first missions to go to Titan and do some exploration there. Just remind us, what was your contribution to the Cassini-Huygens mission? Well, I was very lucky. My, my very first job uh, straight out of university was as a young engineer um, working for the European Space Agency. This was just when the Huygens project started. Um, in 1990. So I got to see and to some extent participate in some of the early design decisions uh, about the probe uh, and it, more, more importantly it gave me a sort of broad overview of what uh, Huygens was, was going to do and how it fit in with the broader Cassini mission. Um, uh, but I also saw that in some ways the scientists uh, developing the instruments uh, were going to have more fun in the long term than the engineers who you know build the design the thing, build the thing, this out the door onto the onto the next thing. Uh, but you know the scientists are thinking ahead, you know, in nineteen ninety, they're thinking ahead to two thousand and four and and what they're actually going to find. And and I found that very, very compelling. Uh, and so I went back to the UK um, in ninety one and and uh, did a PhD um, with uh, John Zarnecki, the principal investigator of one of the instruments on Huygens, the mm -hmm. the surface science package, mm -hmm. uh, and that was that was great. I mean, you know, doing research, thinking, learning all about Titan, and having the opportunity not to be looking at documents and thinking about the big picture, but actually to to focus in mm -hmm. and to think through what you know, one little piece of Huygens was, was going to do. You know, what measurement range should this instrument have? You know, um, what could go wrong with it? Um, and to, to have the opportunity to, to literally build it. 
and, and that's you know, bragging rights you, you don't really get very many opportunities for. So, you know, I, I, I'm sufficiently proud of it to, to carry, um, carry something around on my, my keychain. Um, this is a thing called the, the penetrometer, and um, you can, um, you can you know, learn more uh, about it in the, the Destination Titan uh, documentary. But um, you know, it measured basically how hard Titan's surface was at the moment of, of Huygens impact. So this was the first bit of the Huygens probe to make contact with the Yeah, it, it, it sort of stuck out of the bottom of the probe about five centimeters ahead of the, the main body so that it would have a relatively undisturbed penetration um, of, the, um, of the, the Titan material. So, so this is made from the same billet of titanium alloy, it's the same slab of piezoelectric material and uh, you know it's a matter of tremendous pride to me that you know there's, there's this thing sitting a billion miles away on the surface of Titan uh, and there's uh, another one again from the same batch uh, sitting in the, the Science Museum in London. Uh, near the Apollo 10 capsule and James Watt's steam engine, so wow. you know it's it's been been a privilege. And penetrometer really does what it says on the tin. It is the first instrument that gave us some indication of the nature of the surface of Titan. Yeah, it's a very simple instrument. Um, it, um, it it develops a force history uh, of the resistance uh, of penetration. And uh, from that you can deduce um, whether the material is, is granular or whether it's a, you know, a solid slab uh, and how hard it is. Um, and what we, what we learned from the specific point on, on, on Titan where, where Huygens landed was that the, the material was uh, fine-grained but cohesive. Uh, basically wet sand. Right. Uh, you know, we don't know what, what the sand was made of, possibly water ice, more likely organic solids, uh, and it seems to have been moist with liquid methane mm -hmm. um, that had a, a quite characteristic uh, sort of resistance profile. Um, there was a, a little anomaly at the start of the, uh, the, the profile. There was basically a spike in the force, and we wondered at first if that might be some sort of crust. So you have this sort of softish material with a crust on top, and, and we did put out the, the analogue of uh, creme brulee, uh, which uh, caught, the, caught the public's and the media's imagination, which was a lot of fun. And, and this is the, the instrument on the Huygens lander, and it's part of the Cassini-Huygens mission, which uh, launched in 2007 and, so, and got there in about uh, 2015. So uh, Cassini was uh, launched in October 1997, and it took seven years to, to get to Saturn. It uh, flew by Venus twice, Earth once, uh, then Jupiter, and then finally uh, at Saturn in 2004. Uh, the Cassini uh, spacecraft, you know, all, all five tons of it at, at launch, uh, carried the Huygens probe. It was attached with a, a release mechanism, and uh, the Huygens probe was uh, released uh, from Cassini uh, on I think Christmas Day uh, 2004 uh, then it took th three weeks just flying asleep um, through space by itself before it entered Titan's atmosphere in uh, mid-January 2005. 
But then Cassini went on to uh, continue orbiting Saturn and flying by Titan um, uh, more than 100 ti 120 times over the next um, 13 years. So it was a really epic uh, you know, voyage of discovery, mm. and um, it brought the, as we slowly mapped out different parts of Titan, it brought the, the global context mm -hmm. to the, the ground truth that, that Huygens discovered. So, you know, people often ask, well, you know, what's the surface of Titan like? And I, my usual response is, well, what's the surface of Earth like? I mean, you know, there are deserts that look like this because they've got sand that's been blown by wind and that selects for, you know, particles of a given size and you get dunes and that's all very nice. But there are other places where it's uh, liquid that's transported material there. And so you have uh, rounded cobbles uh, that have been, you know, the corners have been broken off as uh, a, an energetic stream has transported bigger class of material. And that's sort of what we saw at the Huygens landing site. Um, but, but Titan is a diverse place just like the Earth is a diverse place. And there's some remarkable images of those liquids on the surface of Titan. It's liquid, but it's not water. Right. Um, the, in many ways, you know, Titan is, is unique in, in so many different uh, ways. Um, not only does it have a very dense atmosphere, which is why Huygens was able to, to parachute uh, down to the surface, um, but it, its uh, surface conditions, the, the low temperature, of 94 Kelvin um, and the presence of um, methane, which is a condensable gas at those temperatures, means there are surface deposits of liquid and there's actually a hydrological cycle where the liquid evaporates and forms clouds and falls down as rain. And we even saw with Cassini mm -hmm. not only places on Titan where there are exposed liquids, mm -hmm. some, some quite large, uh, several hundred kilometers across, so we, so we really call them seas. Mm -hmm. um, there's also evidence of uh, you know, river valleys and the, the stream bed like Huygens landed in. Um, but we actually saw with Cassini um, methane clouds forming in, a, in an area and then the ground got dark. And then, the, and then over following weeks, the ground brightened up again. So, you know, we know this, is, this, this process is happening today. Now, uh, that process was observed by Cassini from orbit? Correct, uh, from Saturn orbit. So we, we'd get uh, kind of views once a month or so of Titan. And, and just going back to the signs gathered by the Huygens probe. So most of the uh, scientific data collected was on the way down whilst it parachuting down to the surface and then it landed and then it transmitted for a while. So how long was Huygens operating for during its uh, short life? Well that's an interesting story. Of course when Huygens was designed we knew next to nothing about Titan's surface. There were ideas that actually the, the entire body might be covered in liquid methane mm -hmm. um, and uh, there was actually a requirement that Huygens float um, and much of the instrumentation on, on Huygens was optimized for a possible liquid landing. Um, and that was true of much of the instrumentation on the, the surface science package. It even had a sonar to, to measure how deep the, the sea was. Um, I was a little bit of an outlier in the, the team in that my, my instrument, the penetrometer, was, was optimized for, for a, a solid landing. But I did simulation work on, um, on splashdown dynamics, for example, which was kind of, kind of interesting to do. Um, because we knew so little about Titan's surface, 
it was not possible in an engineering sense to be assured of the probe's survival. Mm -hmm. You can land on a rock and yeah. break up. You could you know, land in some big pile of very fluffy dust and fall to the bottom of it. You know, nobody knew what was going to happen. So um, there was no landing gear. There were no shock absorbers or anything like that. Um, there was a requirement that there be enough battery energy and that the probe stay warm enough that it could transmit to Cassini for three minutes. Three minutes. After the, after the longest possible descent, which was two and a half hours. Um, uh, what actually happened was that the, um, the descent took uh, two and uh, a quarter hours um, and the probe continued to transmit uh, for uh, actually hours thereafter, um, but after 72 minutes on the surface, uh, Cassini had flown by far enough that it was actually, it actually went below the horizon and was no longer in radio contact. Uh, we detected the signal from Huygens uh, some hours e even after that, um, but it wasn't possible to, to recover any data because the, the link wasn't strong enough to, um, to, to, to interpret. And that's an incredible story because you don't, as you say, hardly um, much detail was available at that time, so you didn't know how long it would take to go through, how thick the, t the atmosphere was, what kind of landing it would have, how long it would last after the landing. Mm. And the reason why the time was limited is because, as you said earlier, Cassini was orbiting Saturn not Titan. So how long would it have taken for Cassini to come back to Titan uh, after the initial orbit? Yeah, so I talk about the design of the Cassini mission and, and the Huygens probe um, in, a, in a book actually, a Haynes owner's workshop manual on, on Cassini Huygens. Um, and uh, the, you know, to set, set the stage, uh, Titan's orbit around Saturn is 16 Earth days. Um, now, some of Cassini's orbits were shorter than that, some were longer. Uh, not all the orbits flew by Titan. Sometimes Titan was at a different, different point. Uh, but typically, over the course of the 13-year Cassini mission, it was kind of a Titan encounter every couple of months. Um, in fact, uh, at the, um, the stage of the mission, uh, when the probe was delivered, uh, it was such that the next encounter was, was a month later, th you know, 32 days later. Um, and uh, it's, it's kind of funny, the, um, the radar image we took with Cassini's imaging uh, radar instrument, which I did a lot of uh, observation planning for, um, the, the image that was taken a, a month after the Huygens descent mm -hmm. was absolutely spectacular. Um, it showed a couple of craters, it showed sand dunes, it showed uh, river channels. They were all instantly recognizable. Um, there had been a radar image taken on uh, Cassini's first flyby of Titan about six months before the probe was delivered. And, and that was very hard to interpret. The, the, there, were, there were details on the surface, there were things that looked like they might be mountains, there were things that might have been channels, but it was all very weird and exotic. Um, but you know, nobody needed any help interpreting mm -hmm. the images from the Huygens probe because they're, they're not radar, they're in a very familiar geometry kind of airplane window views. Mm -hmm. Everyone saw those Huygens pictures and saw, oh, those are, those are river valleys. Mm -hmm. And the picture from the surface, oh, it's a stream bed with, with rounded cobbles. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, this, this radar image that we got a month later, 
Um, you know, in, in a way, it had some of the thunder stolen from it. But you know, it's all part of you know building a, a, a synthesis, putting the the um, findings from Cassini's different investigations together. Um, you know, Cassini was very formidably instrumented. It had you know optical cameras, it had infrared instruments, it had a radar, uh, it had um, you know radio science to probe the gravity field of Titan, uh, instruments to sniff the upper atmosphere, and it was a you know a big fight in a way to um, uh, during the development of, of the Cassini science plan uh, to, to work out what, which of these things we do it on which flyby mm -hmm. because you want to do everything but you can't point a radar that this faces this direction and a camera that faces this direction at Titan simultaneously. You know, you kind of have to put everything in line and then work out how, how quickly you can turn the spacecraft. And, uh, and that, that um, science operations uh, plan development was, uh, was a big activity during the, the, the long cruise we had to Titan. It was in addition to the technical side, um, I, you refer to the Haynes Manual that you cover all the technical details. One of the things that I found, and I, it, it leaves a very special memory for me, is that documentary by Steve Slater, uh, Destination Titan. I know how I responded. How did, was it, what was it like for you, from your end, in making that documentary? What influence did that have, do you think, on your career? Um, I don't think the, that particular documentary had any uh, specific right. career influence. Um, I mean, Cassini and Huygens were, um, you know, of, of great public and media interest, mm. you know, from from the get-go. Um, so over the years, I've probably done a dozen, maybe maybe more than that, um, documentaries. I mean, my, my first flight in a hot air balloon was on a, a TV shoot. Um, my first flight in a helicopter was on a TV shoot, uh, gesticulating out of the open door to uh, Lake Mead, actually near Las Vegas, and explaining how there were features that you could see there that you know look like what we see on Titan. Mm -hmm. So you know, at the time, it was you know just another interview, you know sit and get mic'd up and um, and answer some some questions yeah. so uh, you know it was it was quite what was what was interesting of course was the um, the, the human story in in Steve Slater's destination Titan I mean Steve Slater the producer um, was was himself only uh, you know a, a, a teen I think mm -hmm. um, when the Huygens encounter happened and mm -hmm. it's a, a great story that he was so inspired yeah. by by the event to to feel the motivation to to put together a documentary on how uh, you know John Zanecki the the PI of the uh, uh, the surface science package and, and my PhD advisor how he himself had got into uh, you know building an experiment for this epic space mission mm -hmm. and seeing it through and all the challenges that that you have to overcome uh, you know what I didn't appreciate for example uh, when I started as a, as a PhD student mm -hmm. is that the principal investigator on a, a, a space mission or a, an instrument you know it's not their job to be like the world expert on on Titan necessarily right. you know the job is to is to assemble a team and to to make things happen and yeah. to you know 
figure out uh, that you need to find an international partner to provide part of the hardware because your own funding agency isn't able to give you the support you need mm -hmm. and to you know uh, find the right people to do the, the very different jobs that mm -hmm. um, putting together um, this kind of enterprise uh, requires and and it so it took me actually a few years to, to realize yeah. you know um, the challenges that, that John had to, had to address. I think that's uh, quite interesting my perception of that film and what it meant to me was different because of my age and because you were quite young when that happened it's sort of automatic natural way of developing a career I guess um, but yeah it was really well, one, one in fact one of the earliest uh, maybe the earliest TV appearance uh, I had was um, uh, John Zanecki uh, was uh, getting involved in the Open University uh, and um, they uh, decided to put together a I guess a, a, a program a, a course on um, on design for an alien world I think it was called uh, and one of the things they did was they uh, you know they did a couple of TV shoots at uh, the University of Kent where we were based and uh -huh. building the, the hardware and you can see you know me with you know less belly and more hair um, uh, you know with an early early development unit of the the penetrometer um, but they also set up a, a video diary you know basically a, a, a vlog I suppose you'd call it now this was long before blogging was a thing um, but there was this sort of little booth with a camera set up and we could s sit in front of it and you know just say what was on our mind, you know, what the achievement of the, the day had been. And um, it was fun to do a couple of those. And so um, the, that Open University program, I think, was maybe the, my first TV appearance. And maybe, maybe that had a bigger impact career-wise. I don't know. It's a lovely phrase you used. I remember reading a, a letter from Arthur C. Clarke's archives back in 1939. On his first attempt, he couldn't join the RAF. Mm. He said it's because of the presence of spectacles and the absence of teeth. That's <laughs> the reason why he couldn't. Um, so the team that built uh, Huygens and the team you work with, um, did they, as with most missions and most projects, once they come to end, those teams disperse. Um, do you still keep in touch with some of them? Are they still working in this field? Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, it's now 30 years on. <laughs> wow. um, so, uh, you know, careers move on, uh, people go on to, to do other things in, in completely different domains. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, one of the things I, I, I noted, uh, I, I did a, an article uh, for Aerospace America a few years ago called Engineers are Dogs, Scientists are Cats. Um, you know, we're both doing technical things, mm -hmm. um, but the, the mindset and in particular the organizations that, that we're in are, are quite different. Uh, engineers, as you say, are, are very project-oriented. You know, they, they're responsible for delivering something. Right. Then once it's delivered, that's it, you're done. You, know, you check the box, you move on to the next thing. And in fact, they, engineers work in groups. It's kind of a, like, the, like a pack. Right, they move on to the next thing. Scientists are more like cats, more territorial. They're trying to kind of take possession of a problem mm -hmm. and that they'll work on it even if they're not being paid to work on it, right? Because mm -hmm. they want to solve it. And, um, and, and so in a way, the scientists are easier to keep track of over the years because mm -hmm. they, they hang on to that, that problem and maybe work on other projects that are related to that problem. Mm -hmm. Whereas engineers, you know, just go on to whatever they're assigned to. Um, 
so I certainly stay in touch with many many scientific colleagues, including including John Zanecki. Um, in fact, um, as it turns out, um, one of the uh, key players in the um, uh, surface science package development, the, the project manager, in fact, mm. uh, Mark Lees, who's in the um, Destination Titan documentary, uh, he's still around in the space instrumentation business. And um, uh, in fact, uh, I am now sort of in the position John Zanecki was. I lead a, an instrument uh, development for Titan, um, an instrument called Dragmet, the uh, Dragonfly uh, meteorology and geophysics package. And um, it has many of the same sorts of sensors that the surface science package uh, has. Uh, and uh, in fact, we are coming up in just two weeks on our preliminary design review, basically where we, we rack up the plans uh, for, for how we're going to build this instrument and how we're going to test it. I mean, launch is still five years away, but you know you, you need a, a very um, consolidated design, very secure plans to, to be given the authority to, to move ahead. And part of that review process um, you know, seeks external uh, experienced subject matter experts. And uh, actually we've been able to pull in Mark Lees as, uh, as a reviewer. So since he's been through all this stuff and you know, knows what it, what's involved in setting up a test facility and you know, the customs paperwork and just all the extra complications you don't think about. So uh, yeah, definitely stay in touch with a few people. That's a brilliant bit, really, really interesting. Um, I forgot to ask you, um, you mentioned in your early career you worked with ESA and then you did your PhD with John Zanecki, but before that, maybe when you were doing your GCSEs, was space something uh, that you saw as a future career at that point? So, uh, yeah, I was um, uh, always interested in space. I mean, I think I remember getting a book on rockets and stuff when I was, I don't know, four or five. Um, I, uh, the early 80s, you know, when I was uh, a, a teen, I, I did entertain, you know, fantasies of, of flying in space. I mean, the space shuttle was, was you know, going every few months then. There were even expected to be some, some British astronauts. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and, uh, and so I, I sort of had vague ideas about going into, into aerospace. Uh -huh. but, um, but three things happened in very quick succession in uh, early 1986. Um, first, uh, Challenger blew up. And, and that kind of derailed a lot of thoughts of um, uh, you know human exploration. Um, you know, at the time, I think I started having to wear glasses, and so I, you know, no longer the perfect perfect human specimen. Um, but uh, there was also the Voyager encounter at Uranus, mm. which had been sort of expected to be a bit of a dud. I mean, Uranus was just this sort of you know fuzzy blue planet. Um, but uh, you know, it turned out to have a ring system, and it turned out to have a very diverse set of satellites, and and that was really interesting, and that that you know kind of underscored mm. the planetary exploration thing. Mm. And then there was the Giotto encounter with Comet Halley, right. and that was you know Europe's first um, planetary mission, right. uh, even though Comet's not a planet. Yeah. Um, and there were you know Europeans with whom I could could identify. Um, you know, leading the discussion of the new images coming down from, from the camera. And uh, John Zanecki had um, participated in the development of the, the dust impact mm -hmm. uh, detection system on, on, uh, on Giotto, which you know, recorded this sort of you know, machine gun uh, <laughs> rattling on, the, on the, the bumper shield. And so that was very, very dramatic. Mm. And uh, I guess that's probably where I first came across uh, John Zanecki. So, so those three things uh, together really kind of set me on thinking about 
um, you know, unmanned, you know, robotic uh, space exploration, planetary exploration, as what I wanted to do. And you know, talking with the you know school career counselor, you know, they're not used to people having such a well-defined goal. So sort of, well, I suppose you should do maths and physics. Um, and in fact, I you know, as then soon after confronted with this sort of engineering science mm -hmm. dichotomy, you don't. Uh, as a teen, have a good appreciation of the, the difference between those disciplines. Um, and I, I think I ended up making the right choice. I ended up doing aerospace systems engineering at, at Southampton, mm -hmm. and that was um, that was great. I mean, I had to sit through all these classes in um, structures and fluid mechanics and stuff that I wasn't that interested in because I wanted to work on you know, astronautics, um, but there's all the stuff about guidance and radars and so on that was very applicable. And of course, the great irony is that, you know, I was very fortunate to get my, my first job uh, in ESA working on Huygens. And of course, there's lots of experienced spacecraft engineers there, but Huygens had a heat shield and a parachute and they'd have to do wind tunnel tests. And so, you know, the, the aerospace engineering training was, was useful. And um, you know, even had a class in, in helicopters, which, you know, was, was kind of exotic and, and interesting enough at the time. And, uh, you know, 20, 30 years later, I'm getting to apply that uh, that background to the development of, of Dragonfly, a, a rotorcraft lander at Titan, which of course has caught a lot of people's imagination. Before we move on to Dragonfly, um, Huygens uh, was a European Space Agency contribution to the Cassini-NASA, that's a joint mission. But you worked with um, uh, NASA, ESA, and uh, also JAXA. What's the work that you've been working on? Uh, what's the mission you've been working on with, uh, with JAXA? Well, of course, one of the, the great things about planetary exploration is it's an international endeavor. Um, you know, it's what I think Carl Sagan called the, you know, the modern, modern pyramids or modern cathedrals. You know, it's an enterprise that harnesses the talents of you know, thousands of people. Um, and, and uh, it's an opportunity to work together instead of you know, being at war with each other or, or whatever. Um, so uh, yeah, Cassini uh, was, was, was US-led, but actually had instruments from Europe um, uh, on, on board and, and vice versa was, was true of the, the Huygens probe. Um, but uh, you know, since uh, the early 90s and Cassini-Huygens, um, uh, and even a little before, uh, there are other players in the um, planetary exploration domain, and among them is, is Japan. Uh, Japan actually launched a, a couple of distant flyby spacecraft to, mm -hmm. to Comet Halley. Um, and uh, in uh, around about uh, 2010, they, they launched uh, a mission called uh, Planet C, uh, or the Venus Climate Orbiter, which was renamed uh, Akatsuki after launch. Uh -huh. And um, uh, there are often arrangements in, in international missions where you know, the partnerships. Um, so, for example, NASA has uh, supported Akatsuki with uh, providing uh, support from the Deep Space Network to you know, mm -hmm. get more data back from, from Akatsuki. And, mm -hmm. uh, as part of um, uh, all that, there are several um, scientists based in the US mm -hmm. who participate in, in Akatsuki, my, myself included. 
uh, and I work on a, an instrument called the lightning and airglow camera. Basically, it's a very high-speed photometer to detect flashes, possibly from, from lightning. And uh, indeed, we seem to have de detected an, an event. Uh, what was really um, uh, kind of interesting about Akatsuki was that it was launched in 2010 mm -hmm. and uh, in the summer sometime, I think June or thereabouts. And uh, I got the call uh, from, from NASA in November saying, congratulations, you've been selected Selected to uh, you know, to be part of the you know, participating scientist team, um, and there'll probably be a meeting in Japan in in the next month or something like that, or two months. Anyway, uh, not many weeks later, the orbit insertion of Akatsuki was was due to occur, and it fired its engine, and then the engine cut out. Um, in fact, the the nozzle fell off. I mean, there was a, a, a remarkable um, a chain of events, which was very well documented. That the engineering telemetry really shows what what went wrong, and it's a fascinating story. I, I wrote about uh, in an article online. Um, but uh, the mission wasn't lost altogether. It, it failed to go into orbit around Venus, and it just kind of sailed past and went into heliocentric orbit. But the uh, mission designers at JAXA were able to figure out a, a, a tentative recovery plan. They put it on a, an orbit that would go around the sun, uh, I think, uh, 10 times for Venus is nine times or something like that. But basically, it was going to be five years right. in space closer to the sun than they had designed the mission to be. But it would come back to Venus. And uh, they had just enough propellant left to use the, the little attitude control thrusters to, to limp into a very elliptical, you know, non-ideal orbit around Venus. Um, but 2015, you know, I got the call from NASA again saying, well, um, I guess we're back on. Um, and so actually for the last uh, last uh, six years or so, uh, I've been um, closely involved um, uh, with that mission. And that's, that's been a, a lot of fun. You know, there, there are, you know, different aspects of, of culture and the way teams work together. Uh, you know, you have to exercise a certain amount of diplomacy. Um, you know, talking to brash Americans is very different from, you know, reserved uh, uh, Japanese colleagues. And, and so you need to think about, you know, well, communication is a big part of science. And uh, communication is a big part of, you know, the engineering of large projects. And uh, there's good, good lessons there. And it's a fascinating story when things go wrong on a mission, um, particularly the Japanese. I think they had a similar problem with their first mission to Mars and how they recover from that. Perhaps even more interesting. Um, so, yeah, I did a, I did a, a book um, some years ago uh, with uh, Dave Harlan called Space Systems Failures, where we sort of try to, try to rack up a lot of the anomalies that have occurred on, on space missions. And there's, uh, it's remarkable. There are a lot of lessons that don't get learned. You know, the same things go wrong time after time. You're, you're now based mostly in, in the US, is that right? Yeah, I'm uh, at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, uh, which is just outside uh, Washington, D.C. Um, APL is um, you know, one of the, let's say, th three um, big mission developing centers for planetary exploration in the U.S., the others being JPL and um, the Goddard Space Flight Center, which is actually quite, quite nearby. So, you know, APL did uh, New Horizons uh, and uh, Messenger. Uh, at Mercury and uh, the Parker Solar Probe, so it's 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 done quite a few, uh, you know, really quite challenging and, and interesting missions. And, and they are interesting, but one of the most interesting that's in the pipeline, and I think everybody's interest has been piqued by what 
ingenuity has been doing on the surface of Mars. The mission you work, one of the things, <laughs> one of the many things you're working on is Dragonfly. So tell us about Dragonfly. Where is it going? When is it going? And what's it going to do when it gets there? Yeah, so Dragonfly is a, what we call a relocatable lander. Um, it's basically uh, an octocopter uh, that is the size of the Perseverance rover. I mean, it's huge. Um, now, in fact, it, it, in many ways, its origin traces back to some work I did uh, around about 2000. I was working with, um, with uh, JPL on studies of uh, balloons and airships on Titan. And as I you know, looked into you know, how much power do you need to drive an airship and uh, thinking about how does an airship access surface material, you know, analyze, you know, the, the sand and the sand dunes, for example, you realize that maybe a lighter than air platform, you know, aesthetically appealing as it is, isn't actually the right choice. I mean, hot air balloons are great for champagne breakfasts uh, uh, on your wedding anniversary when, when you know the weather is going to be good. Mm -hmm. But if you want to go any place, any time of your choosing, you know, search and rescue or uh, inserting special forces into hostile terrain, use a helicopter. And then when you sit down and work out, you know, how much power a helicopter would need to fly on Titan, uh -huh. it's actually 38 times less than the same size, same mass vehicle right. and same rotor diameter uh, on Earth. And so, you know, I had a paper out in 2000 saying, you know, here's a helicopter idea. Right. Um, and it was before its time, right? Everyone's thinking, well, how, how do you make a vehicle fly itself? Um, and uh, you know, there's lots of lots of challenges, and of course, we hadn't been to Titan with Huygens yet. It was mm. still very much a, an unknown environment. Mm. But you know, fast forward 20 years, and we've had the drone revolution, right? You can go to an airport gadget store and get the little thing this big that just flies happily around. Mm. Um, and and so the technology is there to actually execute this this vision, mm -hmm. um, except it turns out it's an octocopter, not a not a helicopter, and there's there's packaging considerations for that. You know, helicopters have very mechanically complicated uh, gearboxes and swash plates to control the orientation of the rotor blades, whereas mm -hmm. it's actually quite simple uh, to control the speed of a electric directly driven rotor with an electric motor. Mm -hmm. So that's why we've gone with with that architecture. It, it actually turns out that the the programmatic origins of Dragonfly are completely independent from the Ingenuity helicopter. And you know, Ingenuity is a true helicopter with the, the swash plate and the changing uh, blade incidences. And um, in fact, this, this question comes up so often uh, that I actually put together the sort of parallel uh, developments and the different challenges these vehicles have uh, in a book uh, called um, Planetary Exploration with Ingenuity and Dragonfly. Uh, the uh, AIAA is just, uh, just published. Um, you know, Mars is a really, really hard place to fly. The air is so thin that the rotor blades have to claw really hard at the air to develop enough lift. Mm -hmm. uh, and so aerodynamically, it's hugely challenging. Um, there are other aspects of the Martian environment and the, the infrastructure we have at Mars mm -hmm. that make things a lot easier, right? Ingenuity is a, a small vehicle, um, you know, a couple of kilograms, mm -hmm. and it uses the rover to relay its data via orbiting satellites to, to the Earth. And so it, it only needs a small battery, a small radio. Um, it has a little solar panel. Uh, whereas we are, you know, a billion miles away from Earth and we have to send the data directly to Earth. It's a very cold environment. Mm -hmm. uh, so we need to use the waste heat from a radioisotope generator like the, like the one the Perseverance rover has, in mm -hmm. fact. 
Um, we, we use its waste heat as well as the electricity from it. Um, so there, you know, there's a lot of big differences between the environments and the purposes of the vehicles um, and their, their design, and the, those are laid out. But we are um, working towards the uh, launch of Dragonfly in 2027, uh, five years from now and uh, it should arrive by 2034, which is uh, a particularly useful time on Titan because it's exactly one Titan year after the Huygens probe descended. So it's the same season. Wow. So we can exploit the fact that we've measured the winds with the Huygens parachute descent mm -hmm. and we, um, we can basically take the, the seasonal variability mm -hmm. out of the equation in terms of what we have to design Dragonfly for. So. I'm not aware how big Dragonfly is going to be, so it's going to be easier to fly in Titan because it's a thicker atmosphere, but of course no sunlight, so no solar uh, radiation, so you're going to use RTGs as you were saying to, for the power source. Will it be accompanied by an orbiter? No, Dragonfly is a standalone vehicle. Um, it, it has a, you know, uh, we intend a, a radioisotope power supply. It has the instruments on board to do the scientific investigations. Um, and it has a, a high gain antenna, basically a one meter dish that flips up uh, and beams the data direct to Earth. Um, Dragonfly was um, selected in a, a competitive mission program called New, uh, New Frontiers, which New Horizons, OSIRIS-REx and Juno uh, were all flown under. And uh, that mission series has a well-defined cost cap. And there's just no way to put uh, an orbiting relay uh, inside the cost cap as well as the vehicle. So we had to make the vehicle self-contained. Um, that will mean we, we can't send as much data back to Earth as we could if there had been a, an orbiting relay. But we've you know, designed the instruments and the science plan to um, you know, maximize the science content out of, out of every bit. You know, we use a lot of uh, data selection and data compression techniques. Uh, and we have the, the luxury of employing those that, that the Huygens didn't, in part because the you know, computing technology, but also you know, Huygens was a one-shot deal. Uh, it had to operate in real time and hose the data out because it didn't know it was going to survive the landing. Mm -hmm. uh, on Dragonfly, we, we switch on, we take data um, during the Titan day, which is eight Earth days long. And then there's an eight-day eight Titan night when we're out of, out of view of the Earth and the Sun. It's dark. Uh, and basically, the, we just recharge a big battery from the, the 100 watts or so trickling out of the, the RTG. Mm -hmm. And during that time, we can be on the ground looking at little thumbnail images sent down or you know, uh, overview data products, mm -hmm. and then zero in on events of particular interest or you know, a picture of a particularly interesting rock or whatever, uh -huh. and then tell the lander to, to beam that, that down. So we have the opportunity to really um, you know, enhance the, the efficiency, if you like, of the, the operation. Dragonfly, though everyone's excited about the fact that it can, can fly, um, it will only fly you know, a fraction of a percent of the time, basically half an hour uh, for um, you know, once every couple of Titan days, so once a month or so. Uh -huh. right. um, and it can fly um, several kilometers in a hop. Several uh, kilometers? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, and just one question about the entry, descent, landing. I presume because of the, again, thick atmosphere, will it just be a parachute? 
So we enter inside a heat shield, much like the uh, Huygens heat shield or the, that on, on Perseverance. Mm -hmm. uh, we deploy a drogue parachute, which stabilizes that, that body through, through the, the transonic region. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it takes about um, nearly two hours to descend to the lower atmosphere. We'll throw out a, a, a bigger parachute at that point um, to let the heat shield fall away uh, cleanly, mm -hmm. uh, and then the vehicle will will lower and drop out from uh, from the back shell uh, about a kilometer above the ground, and then it, it flies under its own rotor power down to make its first landing. So it's going to um, activate its flying mode during descent. During descent, uh, that's even more interesting than sky crane. That's uh, yeah, it's going to be an exciting uh, EDL. For there will be a few, um, uh, a few tense um, uh, scientists and engineers during during that uh, that last uh, part of the descent. Yeah. And then, as you say, it's what sort of um, lifetime do you envisage at this point? So the nominal mission on the surface is planned for 3.3 years. Um, you know, that's in a way a, a budgeting thing. You have to have something to design for radioisotope generator will decline slowly uh -huh. um, uh, and all that means is it just takes longer to recharge the battery between right. between flights oh, okay. so um, we you know one, one can hope for possibly a mission extension beyond that but you, you have to design the mission to accomplish specific goals in particular we want to look at the surface composition in uh, some diverse geological settings uh, and specifically areas where we think um, there has been a transient exposure of liquid water. Um, we we, we um, land in an area where we, we think there will be plenty of safe landing sites, mm -hmm. uh, basically in the flat uh, plains between some of Titan's big sand dunes. Mm -hmm. And then we'll fly from there in progressive hops towards an impact crater uh, called Selk. And, um, there's evidence that this impact event uh, melted part of the crust, right. melted the ice, made water. That water probably has interacted with the organics that make up the sand dunes, for example. And that interaction yields some very interesting prebiotic compounds, at least as far as we know from laboratory experiments. So seeing how complicated that stuff has got mm -hmm. uh, is, a, is a goal. So we'll, we'll land where it's safe and then progressively march to where it's probably rougher Right. Um, but more interesting. Yeah. Um, but we can do aerial reconnaissance, check out sites before we commit to land on them. Um, and in fact, we're, we're working with the uh, Ingenuity team on some of these sort of operational aspects. You know, how do you coordinate um, you know, flight on another world? And so from what you're saying, the landing site has been finalized already. Yeah, that was part of the original mission proposal. You have to build the scientific case. Um, you know, what, what happened was um, there are some fundamentals of the astrodynamics of, of arrival. Basically, we come in from interplanetary orbit straight into Titan's atmosphere because that way we don't need to carry the propulsion for any, um, you know, braking burns. We can just use Titan's atmosphere to, to slow us down. Uh, and um, that and, you know, uh, the tolerance of heat shield materials mm -hmm. basically says you, you want to aim at the side of Titan that is um, receding from you, basically the, the, the backside as, as Titan goes around its orbit because it's tightly locked. 
Mm. So that kind of set a hemisphere and there's some entry angle considerations that kind of put you on a, a ring um, of, of locations and then you want to land so that the sun is still up and you still have good earth view for you know 72 hours after entry and that kind of narrows that to a sector which is still quite a big sector and we just looked at the map of Titan and this, this crater just kind of <laughs> leaps out at you saying you know this could be interesting. A lot of people ask you know uh, and it would act technically be possible, but it's, it's not the right thing to do scientifically. Um, actually, the Huygens landing site happens to be uh, like a thousand kilometers due south of there. I mean, it's, it's not, not that far on the map of Titan, but it's, it's longer than we can fly. And so we're, we're not expecting to go and visit the heroic corpse of, of, of <laughs> Huygens. Yeah, and scientifically, that would be interesting. I see what you mean. Um, so when uh, we're expecting it to arrive at... Uh, 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 when are we expecting it to arrive at the uh, uh, Titan? So arrival is uh, just before 2034, uh, you know, one Titan year after Huygens' descent. Right. And then finally, I've been impressed with how many books you've already written. What are you working on now and what are you working on maybe in the next, uh, uh, next round? So um, uh, just before Dragonfly came up, I was working on a book on, on Titan seas uh, with a colleague um, uh, and uh, the notion of exploring them with you know, boats and submarines and you know, what we learned from Cassini about its co their composition and the, the waves and, and you know, it's really f a fascinating environment. Um, so I'm trying to get, get back to that. Um, looking beyond that, um, I, one of the things I've been most involved with with Dragonfly and, and other missions is, um, you know, understanding how spacecraft and their instruments work in planetary environments. You know, how do you figure out uh, what risks are acceptable? Uh, how big the waves are going to be on Titan seas, you know, for bobbing around on, on them. Uh, how hard are the rocks you're going to have to drill? Mm -hmm. How much dust is going to fall on the solar panels? Mm -hmm. And, and um, uh, working on, on these uh, environment specification uh, kind of aspects and, uh, and uh, risk management has is, is been really interesting. So I think I might do something along those lines. Well, until later this decade and perhaps the next when I catch up with how all this is progressing. Look forward now, to it. Uh, Dr. Ralph Lorenz, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Gubert.